Hello and welcome to Homemade Conversations, a podcast about the residents. I'm Oprah and welcome to my book club. And I'm Mole and I cannot guarantee that the events of this book did not happen. And I'm Mew and my favorite part of the Brick Eaters is where the uh, the Brick Eaters, um, the, the Brick Eaters, they, they eat bricks. You didn't read the book, did you? I did, I did. It's, it's, I, I read the cliff notes, okay? I'm Rabbit, and instead of a flower, I got you a cactus. So if you could tell, today we are doing the Brick Eaters. We're We're doing the Bricks. Wait, this isn't Bunny Boy Part 2. Oh, um... Oh, Well, we just kind of... I don't know. I had a feeling that maybe there was something going on in the world where maybe people were eating bricks or something. had a dream, like Dale Cooper style. Mole, like, went to the Red Room, and the residents of Cryptic Corp, etc., were in the Red Room, and they said, they said to you backwards, like, do the brick eaters? And you were like, uh, oh, yeah. so that's why we're doing the brick eaters. Um, I cannot guarantee uh, I, that, I you know, was... this isn't going to line up with real-life events. None of us can, so your lawyers can take that up with someone else. I thought we were just doing it because, like, there's a break between season one and season two of the Bunny Boy, but I guess that's that's a fine explanation too. <laughs> All right, so an official description from a website, one of them of the Brick Eaters says, "The Brick Eaters is an absurdist buddy movie featuring a very tall internet content screener teaming up with an aging career criminal whose primary companions are an oxygen bottle and a .44 Magnum." After a short crime spree cementing their unhinged partnership, they work together to prevent a middle-aged lottery winner from polluting the L.A. water supply with a massive amount of fluoride. Their adventures unfold via a highly unreliable alcoholic narrator desperately avoiding the reality of spousal abandonment. Um, so if you could not tell, The Brick Eaters is a mystery novel, and it's told in flashback. So the book is based off of two articles that were published in the New York Times that were printed three days apart in July of 2010, which is eight years before the book actually came out. And one of them wasn't told it was... One of them was titled, The Final Crime Spree of an Oxygen-Toting Robber, about, well, would you look at that? Exactly what it says. An aging career criminal's last hurrah! The other is titled, Policing the Web's Lurid Precincts, which is about content screeners and the horrors involved in a job so fundamental to the function, functioning of social media as we know it. And so the residents asked, how do we bring these two things together? And the answer was, clearly, a book. I mean, what else would it be? Um, it was also uh, apparently partially inspired by Breaking Bad and the way they um, do the collision of unlikely characters. Um, the, the Brick Eaters is kind of formatted like a comedy almost, but the residents take it in a different direction at the same time. Yeah, I think. With yeah, the- so the book starts with somebody and he's like, I bet you're wondering how I got myself into this situation. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It Frank's like like slugging some Jack Daniels. He looks at the camera and it's like, that's me. Now you're wondering how I ended up in this situation. Yeah, I mean, you look at the cast of characters within the book and it seems like at every turn a joke could be made about it. But strangely enough, the the novel itself is kind of grim and 
oddly touching, but rarely is it funny, except in a very dark humor kind of way. Um, and the way the story flows takes a sort of breadcrumbs kind of path, with the residents leading the reader along into unforeseen and bizarre situations um, that come together, or they don't. Breadcrumbs, if you will. So, uh, with that, I think we should just jump right in and start discussing the book. Um, so the book itself is divided up into three sections rather than into chapters. And the first part is called Blood Jet. Abandoned in a barren corner of nowhere, the old man's body was found on a blacktop road next to his oxygen bottle. Some would say the dead man's sorry fate was fixed, that his life was a series of errors all pointing at this exact spot. After all, with 57 convictions and 36 out of 64 years spent in prison, Wilmer Graves never aimed at Nirvana. Not that I knew his name back then. Alright. So, it opens up, we've got our fella sitting here and he's watching TV, he sees on TV, so... Oh my god. Some guy died on the side of the road, and I'm sad and lonely. Yeah, and he sees this, and his life is completely just at... It has bottomed out. It could not get much worse without some kind of external force. And our uh, our narrator, Fl- Franklin Blodgett, Franklin Blodgett um, looks at this... You know, a mysterious case out all the way in Missouri, and he says, This, this is my chance. This is how I'm going to inject meaning into my life. Um, which is to say, by pursuing this thing that has absolutely nothing to do with me. It's weird, because the beginning of the book is nothing like the rest of it. Um, but it does give you a good idea of the narrator that you're going to be stuck with for the rest of the stuck book. Stuck with is a very good term um, to use when it comes to old Frankie. Yeah, it reminded me in a way of like Confederacy of Dunces where even from the beginning you're looking at the person you're going to be seeing the world through and you're like, seriously? This guy? You couldn't find anyone else just the most dysfunctional human being on the planet at any given time. not even in, like, a Spider-Man, like, affectionate, like, endearing kind of dysfunctional, but just, like, you can understand why his life ended up the way it is and why he's so lonely, because I don't want to hang out with him either. Can you speak up when you say that? Wait, the last part? Oh, I wouldn't want to hang out with him either. Um, the only really good part about having him as a narrator is that he's the one with the most events. And he has that uh, distinctive residential voice to him. You know, that, okay, alright, <laughs> that we talk about in every single episode now, I think. I mean, usage of the word mondo. Anytime the residents are telling a story. Uh, well, well, more specifically, oh, nobody else well, says specifically, that. Specifically, the, the usage of the word mondo struck me as very brandy. The, the narrator kind of sounds, well, he sounds like how Randy speaks. And he also reminds me of Randy because they're both kind of very pathetic men. 
I'd rather hang out with Randy with than ex-wives. Frank. Yeah, I mean, Randy isn't an alcoholic, so I, I don't think he's he also not like a bad dude. He's weird and dysfunctional, but he's not like a jerk. Yeah, they're both definitely desperate. Um, I mean, the residents like to tell these kinds oh, of stories sure. about like lost individuals that are just desperate for meaning. And you do see that with like Randy Land, but you see it also with like the narrator in River Bunny of Crime. Boy. You see it with Mr. X in God and Three Persons. And yeah, you totally see it with Bunny Boy. Um, now, you do see like desperate, confusing situations in like Intruders and Gingerbread Man, but the key difference there is that we see essentially the kind of scene we have with the opening part of the book this longing for meaning but with the brick eaters the residents finally tell the story of somebody reaching out and grabbing Mm -hmm. it someone's pursuit of that meaning yeah because i feel like like randy land and stuff he he has these he just has these temporary asphyxiations he jumps to um to sort of cope with his meaningless existence <laughs> Ooh, that was very pleased to say that um whereas with brick eaters he just goes out and does this gigantic scary thing yeah i think the residents with brick eaters weirdly enough have taken a lot of the aspects of their like storytelling albums and storytelling works in general and brought them all together because you see bits of this kind of story coming together like a few decades back but and, and in... now we're we're getting a lot of things that we didn't have before because we get that like bad day on the midway style view of where these characters are coming from we see their origins and we also see, get to see in a way their inner thoughts um but we also get that sort of like god and three persons like being in the moment of the action kind of thing and uh you know, with, with Bunny Boy, he, spoiler alert for part two of our <laughs> episode, he uh, he does end up going to Arkansas, and in a way I feel like th- those journeys are kind of similar, but not really, because Bunny Boy's, his journey to this location in the middle of nowhere in the United States is sort of the climax of the story, whereas with Brick Eaters, it's just the, the almost the call to action. I mean, we all know what the actual call to action of Brick Eaters is, but the the actual first kind of action that takes place is him going to Clinton, Missouri. So let's talk about some of the characters um, we meet and like our initial impressions of them. Um, um, let's start with... How about we start yeah, with we Frank? can't start with Frank because uh, my first impression, actually one of my first impressions of the entire book was, what? That's ten pages in? Yeah, ten pages, not even ten pages in, just because it starts off with like a couple pages about like, you know, the dedication and everything. About three or four pages into the actual story and he just meets this deputy and he calls a perpetually pissed off lesbo deputy and I was like, whoa! I don't like this guy. Do you guys remember? I think I messaged the group chat and I was like, hey guys. I was like, uh, I don't like this. I don't like this very much. Cat, you are like totally correct about that. It, it kind of caught me off guard because I am definitely 
uh, by no means under the impression that the residents are anywhere near oh homophobic. yeah no for sure that's um, why it, it shocked me so badly I was but it was just well, like and, and just for the residents to like step into a character like that um it is very shocking yeah also funny how later on in the book frank is like uh, I, I do have friends that are members of the yeah, LGBT he, community. He says it in a very... Like, shut up, you goon! Yeah, he says it in a very holier-than-thou way. He says, like, um, like someone asks him, um, like, how he's from L.A. and that's where all, where all the gays live, apparently. And he's like, uh, I have friends in the... You know, I have gay friends, lesbian friends, transgender friends. He says it in a very, like self-righteous way but then like look i can name all the things the acronym is for (laughs) like in his internal dialogue um i have the whole acronym down how could i possibly be you know and he's like flexing about how woke he is to somebody who has just like thrown a slur at him he doesn't he's socially graceless he doesn't have any idea about like he's just not self-aware i guess and it's it's, it, that's what makes this book kind of fun to read, where the narrator is so completely helpless in in terms of how to navigate the world. I mean, he's going through it blind, bumping into walls left and right, and you're just, like, watching him as his life falls apart. <laughs> and Frank is also a uh, an alcoholic. It's, like, the one thing that the, the, uh, the back of the book describes him as um well an alcoholic writer desperately in need of distraction having been recently abandoned by his wife um he's honestly good for her (laughs) he's definitely an alcoholic it's very apparent as the book continues on remember the nacho Hmm. let's talk about patty why don't we oh patty i think Oh, Patty. As a transition from talking about Patty, or you know, talking about Frank to Patty, uh, we could mention, you know, or I, sh- I want to mention the the way the narrator talks about women in this book. Which is not ideal. May I just say, not May ideal. I just say, uh, he's, he doesn't like them. I mean, he, he likes them, but he doesn't like them. You know what I mean? He's a He's a woman hater. He likes them, but he doesn't respect There you go. Them. He likes to have relations with them. He likes them as visual objects, but not so much as human beings to talk to. And, uh... Which is... I mean, at first, I think that can kind of turn somebody off from the book because they assume, like, well, if the residents are writing like this, it must mean that they share these views, but they make him pay, like, repeatedly. Yes. Um... For the way he navigates the world, like, he ruins... That's the key part of Franklin Blodgett's existence, is that anything that comes into his life will leave his life because of him. Yes, and I think, you know, hearkening back towards how four pages into the story, he uses two slurs, actually. I reviewed one being lesbian, the other being a much uh, more vulgar slur for lesbians. But you see that, you know, you don't, I'm not reading this and thinking, residents hate gays. No, I, I don't have any illusions about that. Um, so there's another thing like that. I don't believe the residents hate women. I think this is just our extremely unreliable narrator 
being uh they're they're really good at writing misogyny. I think the the uh, scene um Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you know what? This? No, let's say so. We're d- the scene on page sixty-nine is a pretty good image of how um, Frank sees women. Um, wow, that is so good! I cannot believe. You know what? The residents are. Uh... Can we just give a round of applause to the residents again for being putting that on page sixty-nine? Nice. Nice yeah, one. Nice. I can just imagine them like hunched around a table meticulously. We have to make sure that this is on the 69th page. We have to make sure the book is this many inches tall, this many yeah. inches wide. There's this many words on every page. It has to be on this page. Um. Anyway, yeah, I feel like that's a good indicator of uh, how he sees women. And, yeah. and the fact that it's um, <laughs> it's on his like tiny little phone screen, and he's just like dwelling in sadness afterwards, is like it's just a f- very funny picture. It's, it's well, really the, the scene actually picture. starts the page beforehand, where it's talking about first he's he, reading like, about like watching the ones where it's like uh, uh, there was an angelic quote unquote teen. You know, reading. Ugh. So he's, he's watching uh, these pornographic videos starring people who are supposed to be acting as teenage women. And we also obviously see his attraction towards younger women when he immediately goes to Patty, who he knows. Or he doesn't know, but he automatically sees her and knows. Like, you know, he assumes he's she's in her, like, 20s, if that. Oh, um. Yeah. So he he's sort of a scummy guy, but what you do see with Patty is like she is just sort of like she's an honest woman. I mean, she does lead a sort of like really sad life, but she's also got a kind of hope in her and she's got one hell of a backbone. Yes. Um she's, you know, she's going through yeah, a lot like uh, I don't yeah. think this is very spoilery. If if, if it is, we can cut it out. You know, she's going through a lot with her mother being very ill, and she has to raise her younger brother, basically, who's this huge delinquent, and she's working on this dead-end job, and her relationship with her kind of boyfriend is really tumultuous, and basically everything about her life is kind of shitty, but she's holding her head up pretty high through it. I think the next character to talk about would be Ted. Oh, Ted, yeah, I think that's who they mean. And so for another side of, like... I mean, for another side of how Frank views other people, you get into how he views Ted Hendricks, who um, ends up being a pretty major character in the following parts. Um, But for a bit of background, Frank goes to Missouri trying to follow this lead about um, a dead guy laying out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Missouri, which is also the middle of nowhere, um, on the side of a highway with nothing but an oxygen bottle and... um, a .44 Magnum, and the one of the main people he finds connected to this case is Ted Hendricks, um, who is the extremely tall um, techie that's mentioned in the description for the book. Um, and it's weird, Frank kind of like both seems to infantilize him and be incredibly jealous of him um 
This brings in also the article, one of the articles that the residents used as reference or as inspiration for this. Um, the point of that article was basically tech moderation jobs like traumatize people. Um, and you do get that impression from Ted Hendricks. Um, My boy has seen some, yeah. uh, some stuff, to put it lightly. Let's just say he's seen some monkey business. I'll be here all week, folks. He's 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 very pitiful. He's very twitchy. He's twitchy and he's adorable. Yeah. Um I real I really like Ted. I really love Ted. He's a good guy. He's a good boy. He's a sweet little boy. I would do anything for him. He is a residence fan. He is a residence fan. He is a resident. Yeah, I guess there's not a lot of other major characters that show up because we don't really get introduced to Margo. Do we get introduced no, to No, yeah, you do get introduced now? to Margo because he, because, you know, they go right. to the house and we're like, yeah. also, we should be careful with how many right. plot details, even little details, because it takes away some of the truth in the book, so we should be careful with how many. Yeah, well, let's not talk about the monkey business thing in depth. That's, that's for people to discover on their own. Um, um and so... The next character we get introduced to, and pretty much the last major one of this section, is um, is Margot, Ted's girlfriend, who seems to be the ultimate object of um, Frank's desires, but she remains curiously out of reach, and she's like the main reason that um, Frank is jealous of Ted. She doesn't understand um, why someone like Margot would be with somebody like Ted. Which is just a testament to, you know, the quality and character of this man. He has no concept of maybe he's nice. Maybe you can be nice to women. And they will like you more. Nah. That sounds fake. No, sorry. I personally enjoy it when people are just... Rude. But I'm from New Jersey, so... Yeah, you, you don't know what it's like in L.A. or in Clinton, Missouri, or anywhere in between. I don't know where anywhere is like other than New Jersey. I have never left the state. Um, so since we've covered all the juicy details of part one, let's move on to part two, the stork. The stork. I woke up several hours later, hungover again peeking out from the blanket through a blur of pain and nausea. All I could see was something towering over me, with a very erect posture that something was pacing a small area next to my cot. The something was disturbed. The something was Ted Hedricks, and he was screaming at me. Um, so... The main character we didn't discuss in part one... It's probably um, my favorite character. ...is Wilmer... Yeah, Um, Wilmer is the sort of driving force of the narrative, despite being dead for literally the entire book and only, um, you never hear from him directly. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say, but he does not come back from the dead. God damn it! Are you saying Ted I'm sorry, I... Who do? I, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I... (laughs) I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they, they never said that Ted didn't have his freaky-looking skull staff. What if he's actually just going around conjuring spirits? 
Margo threw those out. Um, so the storyline we get for Wilmer is, is it it's neat. I, the way we discover it is really neat because um, Ted gets thrown into the, this whole this whole affair unwittingly. Um, and very and suddenly. Who's to say which affair I'm just Very suddenly. And he ends up, through strange circumstances, telling our narrator about how he's connected to any of this. And how he's connected to Wilmer Graves. Um, and, um... Yeah. A, a fun note is that while this section does open with... Ted talking about the nickname that Wilmer had for him, which was the Stork. And the names for all three of the sections are um, alternate names for people, nicknames, which has an interestingly residential vibe yeah, to it. Yeah, you know, um, back at it again with the identity and doubles and such. Yeah. Um, so who wants to talk a little bit about Wilmer's story? Did you just sing the Brady Bunch theme? It's the no, story of a man named Wilmer. But, you know. Wilmer's dope. That's my opinion on uh, William, yeah, Wilmer. I, I, I love Willie. Um, I love the, the story. It just starts with Ted monkeying around. And it just goes like... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, Ted, the trajectory of Ted's life is very, you know, normal. And then Willie comes into it and it's like, well, time to go ape poop. Time for everything to get so crazy. And... Uh, that, yeah, no. It was just that mere chance. If he, if, yeah. if Ted was not there, he would have had If Ted was in a, you know, right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time. I mean, uh, to be to only. be fair, that's that's yeah. how the entire book operates. Is like every single thing that happens and progresses the plot is like this just crazy chance. Yeah. Yeah. The right man in the yeah. wrong. Yeah, I, I will say all the more difference in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, residential history features a number of these like chance encounters so it leads one to wonder mm. if this type of like story like i'm talking about the real residents oh. the real residents of uh, but like the residents themselves and how their encounters um at random sort of shaped them push yeah. them no, in new right. directions yeah, now that i think about it and so yeah, this type of story seems really important to them, and maybe they thought that this was the way to tell it. Um, yeah. But, so we've got, uh, Frank, er, geez, Willie, who is, like, the, the facts as a career criminal. He's been through it, he's seen it, he's done it all, and now he's got a, uh, tall child hooked, hooked onto his, his destiny, and they're just, wow. They're just going. Yeah, it's it's only through this random encounter that something substantial begins to form in both of their lives. Because they both would have probably ended up in very predictable places doing sort of passionless, predictable things if they hadn't encountered each other. And so one wonders, like, is this... Is this a... Uh, was it worth it, essentially? Is it fate? Is it fate? Um. And on that note, I, you know, really like the relationship between uh, Ted and Willie. It's probably my favorite relationship in the book. It's, it's very, my favorite. It's so wonderful. I love I that mean, relationship. It's such a like. So so when we read the description a while back, 
basically said that the Brigaders is an absurdist buddy movie story, and really that buddy movie section is the entire dynamic between good old Willie and Ted. And I would watch an entire movie about Willie and Ted. It's such a good dynamic. Like they they yeah, both bring out the best in each other. It's really touching. Yeah. Um like um it's 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 so so residential, I guess, that the residents would take those two articles and like weave emotion into them so thoroughly. And- um, you see, like, you know, they, they compared it to Breaking Bad, assumably referring to uh, Jesse Pinkman and Walter White. And it's like, I can see that comparison, except it's just as if that relationship was healthy. Like, they weirdly, despite their circumstances yeah. and despite who they both are and how different they are, they have a very healthy relationship. In, in such a way where you you want them to just, like, drop all of this and, like, just Buy be a there rabbit for farm, each other. Like in a... Oh. A chicken no, no, farm. Uh, or a chicken farm. I was referencing, what's it? Lenny and George. Of Mice and Men. Boom. I know books. Um, yeah, I really like their dynamic. Um, it really feels like, like just a kind of classic two contrasting characters partner up kind of comedy movie situation. And then like... But it's not funny. But like the rest of the book, they basically, the residents slowly twist that into something dark and scary. Slowly scary. I think it's kind of beautiful. Like that, that all that's between them is like really amazing because they're both very like closed off characters for their own reasons, um, but they find a way to express vulnerability with each other. Um, they both sort of fill voids in each other's lives that they weren't expecting to be filled. I mean, that's like... The residents seem to want to tell that kind of story. It's beautiful stuff, man. Um, yeah. Also, let's talk about Pagwag. Pagwag. That stands for really Polyworlds are great and good. The, the W and the A are sent. Yeah. Pagwag's my favorite Damn Pokemon. It. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, without spoiling what Pagwag is, um, I remember reading this and just being like, this is beautiful. This is perfect. What a residential villain, you know? Um, it, because... It was so baffling um, to me, because, you know, the back says... Yeah, um, yeah, you know, the like, attempting to supply, like, you know, pollute the L.A. water supply with Poison the with L.A. Fluoride. water supply. Like, okay. And I didn't know about the, like, you know, too much fluoride thing. So here I am thinking, like, are the residents, like, are the characters in this book pushing, like, an Alex Jones fluoride in your water makes you gay, like, narrative? Like, what is happening? Why is this a bad thing? But then... Yeah, like... It's. I think they're 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 funneling a kind of like distaste for the for mainstream culture. But are they mocking those kinds of people um, through our main villain, who we'll get to in a bit? You know, do they, or are they just like observing this type of person? Um, because the residents do seem to have like a distaste for the mainstream, or they did in the past. Um, but is this like sort of a testament to the futility? of um that kind of attempt to bring it all down 
um, that power grab sort of thing. When I read the uh, the back of the book, um, when I got the book, um, I read the part about the uh, the polluting the LA water supply with massive amounts of fluoride, and I was just like, okay, that sounds really weird. Sounds like the residents. And then I kind of just, like, that was such a weird detail that my mind just blanked it out. And when I got to the introduction of Pagwag in the book, I was like, oh yeah, that was like a thing. Like, oh my god, I can't believe I forgot about that. I mean, with the amount of time that it takes to get to Pagwag, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't think that it was that it, you you would sort of forget about it. Like it almost it. seems like the story is coming to a close at that point, and it's really just beginning. Hey, yeah, you get up, you get so caught up in like all the Frank shenanigans that you're thinking like, oh, forgot about the actual story here. Oh God. That sounds bad. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I feel like the way we're phrasing it makes it sound like it's a bad thing. It's not oh, a bad oh thing. no, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I think the way this this book is structured, it starts off kind of in a very similar way to um, some of the, the residence projects we're comparing it to earlier, like um, Randy Land and The Bunny Boy, specifically to me. Um, in that we're starting off with this unreliable narrator who is introduced to all these weird mystery, mysterious observations. And then in the second part, we sort of get all of that information filled in all at once, which is very similar to how Bunny Boy, we kind of see this weird, just crazy situation and slowly it starts to make sense. And very same with Randy Land. But with the brick eaters like once all that information's filled in like you're only halfway through the book and then more stuff piles on and it just spirals out of control from there it's very interesting let's let's talk about the dynamic between frank and ted because for every good thing that exists there is a a, a disappointing and disillusioned it's not good. Um, it's not, I mean, I can't imagine any relationship that Frank is in, platonic or otherwise, being at all healthy, considering he's a, uh, how can I say this without cursing? This is a family show. Poop head. Poop head. Yeah, Ted just deserves so much better. Also, side note, the residents really like that name. But anyway, anyway, Frank is such a, a, a goon, a loser, a, a pathetic pile of slime writhing about on the pavement. You know, you just want to sort of, you want to kick him. I want to kick him. I'd kick him. Yeah, that, that kick that, him then too. you have Ted, who's just innocent. He doesn't do much. All he was was a driver for Wilmer. That's it. Yeah, but at the same time, he was Wilmer's friend, and you have Frank, who's essentially trying to co-opt the whole situation and their whole mission just because he's desperate for meaning in his life. Yeah, that, that kind of, that need for something is kind of taken over and now it's causing kind of ruin what's going like, on. Yeah, it happens in a river of crime sort of situation where this, this meaning comes at a cost. You know, you can't just take situations onto himself and then expect it to everything to comply you know ted is 
genuinely traumatized by the whole thing, but he gets shoved back into it, you know, for better or for worse. Yes. He has definitely tried kicking yeah. and screaming into this situation. Yeah. But once he's in, he's in. Um, and then through his association with Frank, life seems to get a little bit worse for him. So here I am, in jail, in Clinton, dump Missouri, lying on this dump cot. I can feel every dump bump and lump on this dump mattress, thinking about how many other dump have laid here and pissed and shit, thrown up and maybe even croaked right on this bed. It's been a week, or has it been more, two weeks, three, it's all so hazy now, but yeah, Ted Hendricks' girlfriend Margo eventually showed up, scowling pissed off and more beautiful than ever, and took the kid home. Patty got my stuff from the motel and brought my laptop, allowing me to document Willie and Ted's excellent adventure while it was still fresh on my mind. Do you think they did that on purpose? Do you think they purposely named these characters Willie and Ted so they can make a Bill and Ted joke? I think so. I think it was crazy how the last line of the book is um, Will, Willie actually comes back from the dead and Willie and Ted are like, be excellent to one another. Yeah, that really threw me off. I was like, whoa, where did this come from? And Keanu Reeves was there? Yeah, yeah he was crazy. There. Maybe Keanu Reeves can play Ted. Um, so, there is a, a story that eventually comes together in, in all of this. Um, and there's a team that comes along with it. Essentially, all the major characters of the book collide. I mean, this, I don't think this really counts as a spoiler because there's not that many major characters and it's a mystery novel. And I mean, come on, y'all. Um, but the their like team dynamic is very, um, how shall we say? It's out of, it exists out of it's necessity. It's very B-team-esque. In yeah. that it's like, um, you know, knockoff A team, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> In that well, it sucks. Yeah, almost Not that, none of it works. Yeah, they all follow an endeavor um, that I would say maybe they're not the most qualified individuals around for, um, but they do pursue it. But isn't that life, man? Um, You're never qualified, man, life, until you do man. it, man. You just, like, you go, just man. Go. You just, like, do things. Um, so, our unlovable narrator's life kind of... He, he gets continuously what he deserves, and that's really all you need to know about that. But let me say, it will bring you, presumably, great satisfaction um, to follow that. It's almost as if you get but the mental somebody... image as if, like, he put a, he dropped a rake... And he continuously keeps stepping on the rake, and the rake keeps hitting one in the face. And every time he's like, damn it, how did this rake get here? And somebody comes up to him and says, hey, um, maybe we cannot step on rakes. And he's like, yeah. And then he walks, literally, he turns 180 degrees around and steps on the rake he just got done stepping oh on. I, I think it's a team effort, really. It's, it's not just him. It's like everyone guides everyone into stepping into the ring. Oh, no, we're specifically referring at this point at, to the way that Frank continuously messes up his own life. But I as mean, far as, like, interpersonal up, relationships... Everyone messes up his life. 
basically through his interactions with them, and then... I, I don't want to I just don't think any of the rake-stepping... I don't think the rake-stepping would be happening, essentially, if Frank were not there. Um, so sure, he, his, he is the reason all this destruction sort of occurs. Um, everything would have been fine if he left it alone, but um, it's only him. He's the only reason any of this is happening. And I'm not afraid to say it. Everything is Franklin Blodgett's fault. 2019. Mm -hmm. well, Franklin Blodgett did everything wrong. He's, he's kind of like a magnet and he's attracting all the different things together. And then some of those things don't work together. I mean, yeah. I mean, you see him like with this car on the side of a highway. That whole segment... That whole, this, that was so... Like that's on you, fam. Yeah, the hypothermia thing, it's just like... Ugh, that is, if anything, that is one reason to buy the book. And it, um, and it all happened just because he can't go without a drink. Of course. But as far um, as, so, like, like you were saying with how, you know, everybody messes up his life, that's true, but it's like you also said through his interactions with them. Yeah. If he doesn't talk to them and treat them a certain way, none of this would have I personally think that everyone yeah. in this book messes up their own lives. Oh yeah, everyone no, for sure. But I'm, I'm at this point referring specifically yeah. to Frank and how he like continuously and repeatedly messes up his own life, as, as, as instead of like how other characters make a bad decision and stick with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Yes. So enough about Frank, though. We've paid enough attention to him. It's time to talk about our sweet, dear Crawbaby. Alex Jones. I feel like Crawbaby watches a lot of InfoWars. Yes, but I also... Is it strange? I don't know, that I was kind of... I always imagined him to look a little bit like Borat. Borat? What? <laughs> yeah, I just I thought I always thought Crawford would look a little bit like Borat. I, no, I see him as kind of like a, a like 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 white Borat. No, I don't. I, 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 I always pictured him as kind of like a U.S. you know the U.S. Army guy. Just the you, you know exactly what I'm referring to. Just the U.S. Army guy. Yeah, I yeah. I feel like he'd look like yeah. you know maybe like a buff. As terrifying as this sounds, like a buff Alex Jones. Ooh. I imagined him like a. I thought I thought he was wimpier than I imagined that, you him know? like a uh, a Bond villain, but like an American, like one who's like American military guy, as opposed to this like a, typical a Bond villain, jarhead type guy. I I just imagined him to look like a, like a generic, just general, like a mustache, a beret on all the, the camo. Drab on you know, Am I the only one who, did, did they mention him having a mustache? No, but I imagined it. it it's. I also imagined it. It's okay. Right. I imagined him to be that sort of military sergeant guy. Like very type. prototypical military looking guy, except yeah. like who said that, that guy who's like super into the military but never actually served. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's even got the same type of gun. Oh. I imagined him to look like a okay. Lieutenant Surge from Pokemon. <laughs> That's it, except with like a buzz cut, yeah, and not yeah. an adorable cartoon man. <laughs> That's it. Oh, wait, Damn this, it, you this got picture, it. This picture is exactly what I imagine him, except I imagine him to be bald. 
Yeah, definitely like so either a really short buzz like cutter ball. Yes! Oh my god, I can't believe I was picturing Lieutenant Surge the entire time and I didn't even realize it. <laughs> um, so what do we think about cra our crawbaby and the monolith of the Midwest that is Casa de la Crawford? Um, that was, uh, he was, uh, very scary, um, and... My man's insane. My man is a little uh, bit cuckoo crazy. My man is, uh... He's, he's not so. Bit of a whack a job, but I love a whack his job. rants. He, he's quite the beast. His rants are some of the... I love the way he screams about things. It's so again Alex Jones. Oh, it's amazing. He it, it, reminds, it reminds me of me, Alex Jones. It reminds me of myself, except I only scream about the residents alone in my house, pacing back and forth. I like the one rant where he talks about if God was a gun. Like this is the kind of guy we're talking about. He's he's making up for a lot of things. Um, and he does that with a passion for guns and all sorts of rifles and you know he's he's got a hummer um he's a lottery winner um and he chose to live in kingdom city missouri which uh there you go is that a real place um yes it is it's fine. um yeah I think he's entertaining. I think I think Crawford is entertaining. Um, he's a very particular portrait of a very weirdly common kind of person. It's the sort of person who buys a new Ford truck. Again, like I feel like he's like a like I, I keep saying this, but he's like very prototypical like Alex Jones Infowars type. Like he definitely watches a lot of Infowars. Like he strikes you know that kind of person. I just like to imagine Alex Jones walking around with this like big like guarded compound. You don't like, think that's the kind of right lifestyle now. Alex Jones lives? I mean, he makes well, a lot of money, it, but I mean like not like an Alex Jones type of compound. I'm talking like a Beasley type of compound. I also did imagine that the Beasley compound did look like a regular Midwestern home um, at the surface. Because all so that crap was underground, all the craziness. Yeah. Soon his home. You need moles to dig those kind uh, of holes. Um, animal lover. Soon his home will be underground. <laughs> Working down below. So without giving away what happens, what do we think of the ending? Open-ended. I think my reaction to it in the chat was, what the f***? Uh, yeah, that was basically my reaction was... So what I like to do a lot when I'm reading a book is I like to go to the last page and just read the last word, the last sentence. Mm. And I'm, I'll just have it in my mind and like think about how it comes together. So I did that with this book and I had an idea of how it was going to end. But then I was reaching the end of the book. I was like, how is this going to end? And then it just did. And yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And you're thinking, how is it going to end? And then it just did. Yeah. It's kind of jarring, but it, it makes makes sense with the way it's told. It does make sense with the way it's told, but I, it did sort of leave me feeling like I was looking for more pages. You know, I, peeking up underneath. I know a lot, of, pe a lot yeah. of people were saying like they thought the, the book was missing pages, but 
I, I just still think that's quite because of, because the uh, ending is meant to be a little more open ended, like what happens to Frank. And... I mean, I, I really like how it ends, just because I don't know. It's just very the residents are kind of taking advantage of the medium here because I feel like you're you're allowed to end a book like this, but you're not allowed to end like a a movie or or an. I don't know because you see a lot of movies with weird endings like that or i guess the first thing that came to mind as far as like movies and tv would be like the original run of twin peaks which isn't the best example for how normal <laughs> things end or go yeah. um i i don't know i'm not a particularly big fan of like weird open-ended endings like this most of the time if god and three persons ended without the final song like it just ended right there um, yeah that would be very weird. I think they can kind of get away with it in book four. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it it caught me off guard, but it didn't feel totally out of place. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I I liked it. Um, I feel like uh, to a certain extent, like the book ended because at that point there were no more bricks to chew if you want to put it that way and that there's not really anything i mean obviously there there could still be stuff happening how to close it out but there's no more additional tension to add so it just sort of ends um because the book really is just about just continually adding tension as the characters continue to make these specific choices that alter the entire trajectory of the book. And at that point, there's really no other place to go. So it's like you're sitting there and you're like, hello? But it's also where else would, where there is nowhere else to go. Which I think is, yeah. is, is remarkable considering that's kind of been everyone I th everyone in the book has that kind of you know we've discussed it or at least hinted at it where everyone kind of has that general like there is nowhere else to go very dead end lives and now there really is nowhere else to go there is no more to and say in search of in search of like a, a more of a different hold to die in um i mean frank did find what he was looking for but it was because of his essentially his fundamental fault as a person um, that things ended in the way that they did. It was a very happy ending. It was very joyful. Very happy ending. And uh, it ended with three weddings. And right, everybody got married. Yeah, everybody got married. Ending. Yes, that's true. They, they managed to kill the dragon. Um, they, they got the treasure. Rosebud was the name of the sled. He walks away. Uh, he gets he gets the chocolate factory at the end. He does. He gets uh, his golden he, uh, tickets. Worth. Turns out Darth Vader was his father. He he escapes the video game. All right. Well, um, here's the news. Um, a while back, it's been a while. Um, so has it? I guess it's only been like a month since our last episode. So. Um, In Between Dreams was um, 
made available on vinyl, CD, and digital download from Secret Records. I believe every single vinyl release is now sold out, so you can only buy it on CD or digital. So, um, if you did buy that, uh, apparently they are starting to ship out, depending on what exactly you bought, because it was kind of complicated. Yeah, and then they, um, the base vinyl set, you know, the album itself is being sent out to the people who did specify that they wanted that early. But then the, the bonus one that has the encore and the video audio and the background music, it, um, that's not shipping until August. So also, um, related to, well, the Brick Eaters, um, released very recently, um, as of, like, I don't know, a couple of days ago. The Brick Eaters has been re-released, and you can now buy it and get a little music. What, what is it? I don't know. You got a little tunage, so you can read your little book and listen a little bit of tunage. Get in the mood, get in the vibe. Editor's note, the tunage you're listening to in this podcast is the tunage included with the book. And also upcoming is uh, God in Three Persons Preserved, coming out in August from Cherry Red Records. Um, And also on a similar note, uh, there will be a God in Three Three Persons performance at The Lab, which is sold out. Um, It's a part of a benefit for a place called The Lab in San Francisco, which is a public space dedicated to the arts worth preserving. Um, So... That's about all the news we've got for the moment, but, you know, by the time this episode is out, which will probably only be in a couple days, um, something new will have shown up because it seems that even the su- even in the summer, the residents do not calm mm-hmm. down. No vacation for these boys. And or girls. Who knows? Alright, we're at the end here, and I'd just like to give a thank you to all the people that made this show possible, such as Cryptic Corporation, the residents, Good King Sparky, who edits these episodes because out of the goodness of his heart and his love for us and our love for him, it binds us together. Um, we'd also like to thank Pagwag and uh, the AELAW, the Association of Ex-Wives Leaving Alcoholic Writers. Thank you. Thank you, you so much, Pagwag, for that uh, glorious sponsorship. Um, and I hope LA enjoys the fluoride in the water. I mean, um. And we'd also like to thank listeners like you. Thank you. 